You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you will turn to John chapter 15, we are continuing in our study through John's gospel. Uh, The title of this message is What Here Doesn't Have and How to Get It. What Here Doesn't Have and and How to Get It. And um, we're in this sort of beautiful pause where as Christ has come uh, to do the Father's will, which would ultimately include dying on a cruel cross, though innocent. He takes our sins upon him. And on the way to the cross, he sort of pauses, and he, and he comes away with his disciples, and he communicates to them um, profound truths. And uh, that's where we're at. He's speaking with the disciples. The crowds are all gone. The doors are sort of closed. And he is sharing with his men in the most intimate fashion Um, critical things that they'd need to know that they must know before he'd go and he'd soon go. Not only that, but they were learning irreplaceable things that they must know before they'd go. Remember, they didn't realize that they were going to be sent yet. And in the end, go they they would. They, They were, after all, the apostles, the sent ones. Every child of God is called to go. We call that the Great Commission. But here... In what I've called the Great Convention, the sort of teaching before the Great Commission, they're being equipped for what would be ahead. And we've considered tons so far, chapter 13, 14, um, and we come into chapter 15. I'm not going to recap it now. But most recently, going a little deeper into uh, John chapter 15, the disciples were just introduced to this idea of, of, of producing fruit in and I think in, 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 by using, Jesus did an illustration they'd never forget. They wouldn't soon forget. He spoke of, and remember, within the context of Judas' betrayal and his departure, of branches connected to the true vine. We learned that the true vine is Christ, not Israel. That the vine dresser is the father. That the branches bearing good fruit, whose sole responsibility is to abide Those branches are now 11, not 12. Judas is gone. Adam did a wonderful job last week or two weeks ago making that clear for us. So so now what we come upon is what immediately follows this sort of horticultural illustration. Here's what we read, verse 9, John 15. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Ultimately, he loved, I've loved, now you love. And he's going to get to the you love part in a minute. He's already talked about the new commandment that we love one another as he's loved us. But as he loved me, as the Father loved me, Christ says, I've loved you, now abide, which ties us back into that idea of branches sort of connected to the true vine and abide in my love. To borrow a line from Jude, Keep yourselves in the love of God. And so they were learning then. We learn now, um, if I can say it this way, I think they looked back. They were, they'd spent three years with Christ. They were at the end. They knew that it was the end. He told them that they were leaving, that he was leaving, and they were, they were fearful. And uh, so the Father, if we can say it this way, provided a heavenly environment for the son while on earth. And that environment was one of love. You know, the air that Christ breathed, the wind at his back, the warmth on his face, the, 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 the strength of his heart was that though he would go, be sent into a, a world of the vilest hatred, he still had the love of the father. He knew that the father loved him. It was his. You can see the disciples looking back at what Christ said and what he taught and what he faced, whether it was you know, the opposition from the religious leaders or abject hatred from uh, some of his own people or demons, whatever. They could look back and go, he, he sort of dwelt within this environment of heavenly 
love, fatherly love. And of course, um, that love had to so steady him. And uh, of course, the love of the father is so dramatically different than the love of men with their constant ebbs and flows and a, a plethora of preconditions. It wasn't like that. God's love, the love of the Father, was an eternal constant in a world of like consistent change. So Christ had something from another. He had something from another far greater place. Christ had something here doesn't have, the love of God. And then the something that came from another higher, the something that came from a higher place the something that here doesn't have came to them through Jesus. As the Father loved me, I've now loved you. He's saying the Father's love I've lived in and enjoyed I brought to you. And as the Father loved me, I've loved you. Now abide, remain in that love. He'll tell them exactly how in a moment. But to me it is wonderful, it's consistent, it's confirming just to consider that immediately on the heels of this idea of a true vine and branches that would or would not bear fruit, we find the issue and the reality of love. And then right on its heels, we'll see joy. What did Paul write to the Galatians? The fruit of the Holy Spirit is... Come on, y'all. The last class went all the way. I mean, I'm talking they went. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love... Yes, well done, well done. We really needed to only had to stop, love and joy. And it's interesting that the, the next two ideas that will be presented after talking about abiding in the vine will be love and joy, the Father's love and the joy of the Son. So he loved me, I've loved you, now abide in my love. Here's how, verse 10, if you keep my commandments... You'll abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. They'd, they would, you and I will, they'd keep themselves in the love of God the same way that Jesus kept himself in the love of God by obeying the Father, by just simple obedience. Now, when we think about Jesus, it was he alone that lived, he, he was sinless, right? Perfectly he lived in moral perfection before God, meaning no matter what, he remained. He, never, he remained ever within that profound environment, that beautiful environment of the love of the Father. If you obey my commandments, right, you'll, you'll, you'll uh, abide in my love. And as I've abided in my Father's love uh, or uh, obeyed his commandments, I abide in his love. Except for the one moment then that he may have left that holy environment when the Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for us, right? It was there that he actually felt forsaken. What did Jesus say from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the father we used to sing turns his face away in that old beautiful hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Our sinfulness was the only shadow that his sinless soul ever tasted. It's right to think about that. The, 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 only, the only darkness that the soul of Christ ever knew was what we brought into his life. And interestingly enough, instead of hating us for what we brought to him, he loved us with the same love the Father loved him with, which I think is profound because I'll just, if you, if you have been around and you know me, my, my passion meter tends to run a little high, can get me in trouble. And I, my first response when I'm poked in the eye is not to turn around and say, I love you. It's not my first response. But here's Christ. He's been more than poked in the eye. The sins of mankind have fallen upon him. Instead of like, how dare you? But he turns around and says, I'll love you to the end. I love you to the point that I'll die for you. Instead of hating us for robbing him of that which is very life itself, being connected to God. This is life, eternal life, to know him and the Father, to know the Father and him who sent him, the Son and the him who sent him. He turns around and love, loves us. And so though the lavish love of God will always be, and for you, we experience his love personally by obeying his commands. I hope you know this. 
that the love of God doesn't stop for you when you sin and start again when you obey and stop when you sin and start. No, no, it's, it's an ever constant, never ending, unconditional love. Now, Jesus has spoken of obeying his commands on a couple of times now, 13, 14, and 15. I received an email from a college student, young woman. She was here at the last service, and she'd been listening while away at college and wondering why each time that Christ talked about obeying his commands, none of the teachers, myself included, spoke of the Ten Commandments. And so the idea that she was getting at is, isn't Christ's teaching that we keep ourselves in the love of God by obeying when he says his commands is certainly a reference to the Ten Commandments. So I wrote back to her, we spoke at the end of the last service, but I wrote back to her while she was at college and I said, well, okay, I understand what you're saying largely. It is true that the child of God does desire to keep the 10, but in chapter 13, 14, and 15, in every case, as Jesus has been talking about obeying his commands, he's been crystal clear on just exactly what he means by the commands were to obey, folks, not the 10, but the one. And, and that'll get clear here in a moment, clearer, if you ha- especially if you haven't been with us. These things I've spoken to you, now here comes that second sort of divine thing, that my joy, Christ says, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. So now another, what I ca- I'm calling a shared thing, another shared reality, honestly, earth knows nothing of, First, the father's love, now the son's joy. And because I just can't really contain myself any longer, I'll just sort of blurt it out. Folks, the greatest things and the greatest realities in this life here doesn't have. Does that make sense? What it is that, what it is that we want, you won't find it here. Here doesn't have it. The greatest things and the greatest realities in this life You can't find them here. Now, we've all tried, and we'll still try because we're fallen. But they aren't here, number one. And number two, the things here doesn't have, they're best when they're shared. And we're going to talk more about that. That is, these, these full things, these divine things, we've talked about the Father's love and now the joy of the Son. And ultimately, our joy. They're not here. They're divine, they're supernatural, here knows nothing of those things. They are ours because of Christ, but they're fullest when they're shared. And that requires something, and that's kind of the idea that we're ultimately getting at. So then you think here now, the joy of Christ in us. <laughs> I mean, that's, when you think about the fact that Christ has joy in you. Remember last week, Billy was talking about this beautiful kind of love that a mother has. And he talked about like, hey, that kid's got the face, the the kind of a face that only a mother could love. You know what I mean? Like only mama could love that. I think heaven looks on and goes, that kid's got like a soul that only Jesus could love. That's some nasty stuff. So so to what degree does, what, (laughs) my joy in you, it's profound. What is it, the joy of Christ in us? Well, if I, 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 if I can define it rightly, perhaps, it's this smile on his face when he sees something of himself or heaven within us. He, he smiles. I'm the father of five beautiful children, and some, which give me great joy. And something about who they are, especially as evidenced by how they live, makes my joy full, makes my joy complete. But I can tell you, and I think a lot of other parents in here will agree immediately, (laughs) we, father and children together, don't always enjoy joy together. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) They're mine, these kids, in so much as the father has given them to me by grace. And contrary to what our modern and progressive with ancient and dark origins culture thinks, Children aren't some burdensome weight that we have to lug around through life. It is an incredible imposition. They're supremely the light bearers of God. Yeah. I've been, you know, I'm 
largely preaching to the choir now over the course of the last two years. I think we've probably filtered folks out by getting in. It's been interesting. A bunch have left and a whole bunch of you have come because you, you seem to care. You seem to be able to see past what it is that I've been accused of focusing on. So I have said for two years now or more. In fact, it goes back probably increasingly beyond that. We better pay attention. And the, why, the reason why, and I've been accused of, you know, clutching the flag and exchanging the gospel for nationalism and all kinds of stuff. And, and, and it's, I'll say it for the hundredth time. What I'm trying to address isn't the right versus the left or red versus blue or conservative versus liberal or anything like that. It's principalities and powers. We're dealing with the darkness that is unleashed in a way like we've never seen before. And if you're paying attention, what's happening right now with Roe v. Wade is literally a spiritual battle right in front of our eyes. Are you watching people lose their minds? And what was once sort of like placed under the category of women's reproductive rights? You know where that came from, by the way? Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah, and the idea, here's the idea. This sort of idea of fairness is so perverted, but it's run its way through just about everything. Fairness, equity, diversity, inclusion. All right, so Ruth Bader Ginsburg looked on, great champion of women's rights, and thought there's no way that a woman can have equality with a man if a man and a woman, outside of the context of marriage, come, come into a sexual union, and if the woman can't walk away with no consequences like the man, there's no equality. So we'll create a law that will call women's rights over her own body to do with the inconvenient child what she wants to do so she can walk away from the outside of the will of God experience just like a man can. As if, by the way, no, I understand, I'm not gonna, I, as if, by the way, what we do with our bodies doesn't affect our souls, male or female, that's a lie. But it is true, you heard it here, men don't have babies, okay? I, I'm just telling you, I'm telling you they don't. Folks, you know why this is such an issue? Because every single time a child is born, it is, it bears this child. Not, listen, not dogs or monkeys or frogs or chickens or squirrels or rats or snakes. They do reproduce, but none of them bear the imago Dei, the image of God. Every single child does. And the devil hates the Imago Day. So we've been told for centuries as Christian people, conservative people, shut up, shut up, we don't want to hear it. And I say right now, we better not shut up. I, I'd like, here, abortion's going to continue. I'm sure it will. But I personally would like the stain of that off of our nation. You want to do it in California, in the Northeast, have at it. Have at it. In a corporation, you want to pay for it? Have at it. But I'd like that like I wanted slavery, like Christian people wanted slavery, the sin of slavery, off of our nation. Let's get it off of our nation. It was Christian people who took that sinful thing down. And it's got to be the saints of God who will stand up and say, where do we come from? We were made in the image of God. Life, life, folks, is from him. So here you have the love of the father for the son. You get the son's joy in his child. Sorry to go off on the bit there, but I think the idea is there's something that we don't consider much, and that is that these children that were, a lot of you, you know, great imposition. They are an absolute gift from God Almighty and like his love, the son's joy in his child, this other thing, this other reality here increasingly knows nothing of, listen, is at its highest when it's shared. 
My joy in my children is at its highest when their joy is full. And I can just tell you, their joy isn't full when they're in disobedience. They don't have full joy. When I abide in his love, which is constant, I partake of something divine. When I don't, though his love remains, it remains. Never runs out, never gives up. In the same way, no matter what, my joy remains in my child. But when I don't abide, there's a shadow on my side. And so it is not only with the experience of the love of God, but also my own experience of joy. It, it, will, it will dissipate. So the Father's love and the Son's joy is richest and best for us when it's shared. And this joy of His in us is richest when it's full. And when it's full, it needs to be shared, which requires, again, obedience. So we still wonder, obedient to what? Here's the command, verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Again, the goal of God and the gift of God being his love demonstrated and understood through Christ Jesus isn't something simply or merely to be savored and enjoyed alone. It's something to be shared with others. In fact, even more, and this is vital to understand, this love here knows nothing of we're commanded to share with one another. For it's truly only the, the, the one another's who actually understand what it is that is ours and what it is what, that we're called to give away. There are uh, studies coming out in droves now, and they're going to keep coming because you cannot suppress the truth. But during the last two years of the COVID authoritarian jihad, those, uh, <laughs> and that's what we've dealt with, it just is. Those faith communities, this, this is the research that's coming out. Just pay attention. It will come out every single day for years. Listen. Those faith communities who truly live like faith communities, spiritually, physically, emotionally, they fared profoundly better than those, what we might say, more natural communities did. Church, we've got something, or at least we have access to something that the rest of humanity does not have, and that is the love of God. And if we want to experience the love of God, what is already ours through Christ, we've got to give it away. Listen, to one another. I'm going to ask you, church, and if you remember from a couple of, year, a couple of weeks ago when we shared sort of uh, th this is who we are and this is how we see things, I pointed out that there are churches, local churches and groups of churches that see this right here for this reason. This is the predominant reason. This is, this is how they see this and what they see this is for. Other churches see this group right now for this purpose. And I shared, this is how we see church, right? We talked about that. And so when I say to you, church, pay attention here for a second. I want to unpack something that isn't just nuanced or semantic. Think about it. We're called to love our enemies, right? You're <laughs> me nervous. We're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. Enemies love our neighbors. We love them as ourselves. But here, we are called to love one another as Christ loved us. It's the command we're called to church. One of the early church fathers, Jerome, recounting being close enough, the, early, the late history of John, who actually penned this gospel. You know, John was that apostle that you just couldn't kill. You know, they deep fried him. They did everything they could. They just couldn't kill the guy. And later in life, history records, Jerome actually speaks of it, being so sort of tortured for his faith and disheveled in age and by physical persecution, he would be carted, like he would be carted out before the church, the gathering of saints. And they wanted to hear something from the stately, sagely, last remaining apostle. This is what he'd say. Little children, love one another. It's like the only message. 
Not like make sure you love them out there, make sure you love the group that you disagree with or make sure you get out there. He'd look at the church and say, little children, love one another. And it's about like all he had. And they were like, does the guy got more material? I mean, is it the only thing? Is it all he can remember at this point? I mean, what's the deal? And they asked like, why is that the only message? This is what he said. It is the commandment of the Lord and the observation of it alone is sufficient. What happens here? What did Jesus say? They will know that you're mine, how? By the love that you have one for another. Saints, when he gave the command, he was talking to the 11. You love one another the way I loved you. I would say this is a command for the church. Now he defines it. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. You're my friends if you do whatever I command you. So he qualifies and defines the love that's ours and the love that we're to give to one another. It's the greatest. There's none greater. There's, there's nothing higher than this. The greatest love isn't a feeling. It's, it's an act of self-sacrifice. It's a love that will risk personal injury for one another's well-being. And beyond that, and we might even say within that sort of uh, designation of what his love for us is and what it is that we're to give to one another is this little hidden gem that most of us from our cultural background, it, it, it makes sense, the word makes sense, and it's sort of fond to us, but it doesn't hit us the way that it hit them. It's found in the little word there, friends. And, we, and perhaps we just can't fully appreciate it even after my humble attempt to sort of communicate, but this was something for their ears so foreign and so fresh. I mean, they were just, Jesus was their rabbi. He was their teacher. This was perfectly common in Jewish culture. It isn't, in fact, it wasn't even uh, that uncommon in the early church, right? Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Some of you say I'm of Paul, like Paul's my guy. Some say I'm of Apollos, like Paulus. These pa Apollos is my rabbi. Peter's my rabbi. Paul's my rabbi. I mean, there was a, we have this in the church today, right? We have our rabbis today that we identify with. We choose to follow and seek and emulate to some degree, though not not to the same degree, maybe as them for sure, for, as there in that time. Additionally. Um, one of the other sad tragedies, I think, of the last season in our country, culture, and church is many of our once respected rabbis have really let many of us down. Which, by the way, is precisely where this command to love one another really begins to seek in and sink in in a really, really deep way. Right? Love one another as I've loved you. Church, love one another as I've loved you. I, I've told you for the last two years, I think, as a church, we've, we've had a great opportunity but missed it and failed. We're just as divided as everybody else. I could tell you a lot about my own, and by the way, this isn't a feeling, this is a decision, where you look on and go, I completely disagree with this leading voice in the church and his perspective on what we're facing today, completely, but I love him as my brother. And there is place in the body for difference of opinion. Now, I don't know that I'm going to get that in return, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'm, I'm not called to get it in return. I'm called to give it. The command is to me, you love one another. It would be great if the church, especially the leaders of the church, could demonstrate some breadth and some genuine love where people look on and go, evidently they don't have to agree. They can strongly disagree but still love one another. You write your book, I'll write mine. The titles will be completely different. But we're brothers. And it'd be great if the world could see that. I don't know that that's what they're seeing. Nevertheless, historically, a Jewish man would choose his rabbi, become his, like willingly become his servant, never to become his friend. It would always be, I'm the master, you're the pupil, I'm the master, you came to me, you'll be my servant. I'm the master, it, it never, it never, well, here's the greatest rabbi ever, and he turns to his pupils, he turns to his disciples, he turns to his servants, and he says, you're my friends. For the Jew, they're like, what? And once again, this friendship 
is something like love and joy, the Father's love and the Son's joy that's shared through obedience. If you obey my commands, you're my friends. Look at 15. This is interesting. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. Why? For all the things I heard from my Father, I've made known to you. He'd soon demonstrate or treat them as friends, showing them the full extent of his love. He'd lay his life down. The greatest example, he'd lay his life down for his friends. But here, before the crowning act of the cross, he, he calls them his friends. And this friendship, to me, is interesting. He's, he sort of qualifies it, like here's the difference between a friend and a servant. And, and he basically says that servants function relationally on a need-to-know basis, and most of the time for a servant, they don't need to know. The friend, on the other hand, moves from a need-to-know basis to an in-the-know basis. Like, look, at, look at it again. For a servant doesn't know what his master is doing, doesn't need to, not called to. You're the servant. But I've called you friends for everything that I heard from my father. You're now in the know. You're not on a need-to-know basis. You're now in the know. Now, it strikes me uh, that perhaps one key to true success in life. So if you came for a TED Talk, here's a little three-minute version. Like this just, this is just, you don't have to be a believer. This is just sort of good. But one key to success in life is sort of understanding what role we're in at any given point. Whether we are quote-unquote servants of a corporation and its leadership or in our relationships with others, maybe even in our homes. It seems to me that when we see our role rightly at any given moment, it can make a profound difference in life. I think there's a fair percentage of, of tension and um, discord and sort of a lack of harmony within our souls simply because we don't see ourselves rightly in the moment. So you're at your, your corporation, you're not the boss, you're not the one that makes the decisions, but you want to go let the boss and those that make the decisions know what you know. Like, hey, I wouldn't do it like that if I were you. Most bosses look on and go, you're not. You're not me. You're a servant, and you don't need to know. Go back to work. Well, I'm frustrated. Well, you wouldn't be frustrated if you're a servant. If you're a servant, if you saw yourself as a servant, you just go back to work. It's not really, evidently, I don't need to know. You don't need to know. I think a lot of the rub that we have, uh, there is a certain measure of it that if we just saw ourselves rightly, we wouldn't be so vexed or so frustrated. That's why the humility of Christ is so profound in this just going through life as a servant, something we incredibly value. Now, it is true that as sons and daughters, we're friends, but we're actually more than that. The New Testament teaches that we're heirs, co-heirs with Christ. But folks, we still remain servants. In fact, Paul, the apostle who penned most of the New Testament, when he starts his letters, doesn't say Paul, a friend of God. No, he, he's like Paul, a bondservant. It literally means slave of Christ. That's who I am. He saw himself that way, functioned that way. So though, folks, we are in the know, that is, we, we, God has let us in on the big picture isn't it true that we very rarely get a full debriefing of all the little details that are happening in our lives? We don't. I don't know what's coming around the corner. In fact, I'm glad I don't. The Lord's like, you know what? I'm not going to tell you what's coming around the corner because if I told you, you'd die right now. I'm not telling you. You're not ready. There's grace for what's coming around the corner. You don't need that grace now. Around the corner, you will. So they move from friends who, or excuse me, from servants who, sort of functioned on a need-to-know basis to friends who are now in the know. And then he says, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. So the talk begins with this beautiful idea of the true vine, branches that are bearing fruit by abiding with the heavenly Father who tends the vine. Then we hear beautifully of love and joy and friendship and all this through obedience and abiding obedience but brings brings all these things to bear you know to us within us and ultimately through us so like love and joy and closeness and communion with Christ supernaturally comes to supernaturally comes to us as we just sort of naturally abide now 
on the one hand, the passage depicts abiding as something that we do as if our growth or fruitfulness is dependent upon us. And to a certain degree, that's true. Reminds me of the farmer who is in partnership with God. God will not do what the farmer must. (laughs) Pray all he wants. So there's a man who's been given a large plot of land, undeveloped land, and he thinks, I'm a farmer. And all you have to do to be a farmer, get a hat like that. (laughs) That'll do. And you got to have something with Carthart on it, Carthart, hat, overalls, or you're not a farmer. So he's got land, and he's like, I'm a farm. I'm a farmer. I got my hat, got my Carthart, got my boots, maybe even a little dip. I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure where he's at. But he's like, I'm going to be a farmer, and I'm a Christian farmer. And you know what? There's nothing God can't do. Nothing is impossible with God. So he wakes up in the morning, gets his hat on, overalls. After coffee, you put the dip in, I guess. I don't know. Gets down on his knees. Raw land. Father in heaven. God who parted the Red Sea, delivered the children of Israel. I'm asking you, bring harvest. I want a crop. Do it, God, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Gets up. Wakes up the next morning. No crop. Earth hasn't been disturbed Doesn't look like a farm at all. The persistent widow. I'll keep. Take his hat off. Respectful. Father. Remember the persistent widow? She she kept she kept on. I watched a movie, Faith Like Potatoes. Bring it. Bring, bring it, God. Bring. Ring. And I think if you could hear from heaven, God would say, get up, off, get up off your knees, get off your rear, and get out there and do what I'm not going to do. And when you get out there and do what I'm not going to do, then I'm going to do what you can't do. You're going to prepare the land and you're going to plant the seed. And then I'm going to bring the sun and the rain and I'll keep the blight anything from ruining your, and I'll bring, germination will happen, and then ultimately there'll be a crop, you see. So what, if you're like me, and you begin to sort of, by the way, there's a classic little book by Jerry Bridges called The Pursuit of Holiness, which sort of lays that idea out in the very beginning. It's really sweet. But if you're sort of feeling the weight of this, like me thinking, you see what you've just talked about, Pastor, is the part that I fear most. What I fear most is me. If, there, if there's some aspect of fruitfulness that's up to me, I'll, I'm out now. Because I, I know me. I can be faithful for a little while, little fits and spurts, but like I, I, I'm, if it's up to me, and any true child of God who sort of wrestles with the, the part that's mine, the part that's his, what, this that is said here is a ray of divine hope for every true saint who, who feels this persistent discomfort Uh, that I'm describing here. And listen, I'm convinced every true saint does feel this intensely. We hear the words, you didn't choose me. I chose you and I appointed you. In fact, I ordained it that you will bear fruit and that your fruit will will, will remain. And then he sort of comes back to this whole idea of prayer that we've talked about before. He'd mentioned earlier in the very same Context. Here's sort of a sign that we're rightly connected to the one um, who chose us, even our answered prayers. Remember, these were men that lived with Jesus. I mean, they lived right, they lived literally with Christ. He provided everything they needed, not because they deserved anything at all. They were, and they were learning as they came. You know, we've been watching the progression, even in the gospel that we were studying. They began to learn that when they asked him, he could provide. They were learning, like, if you ask me, I'll provide, but he's just said, I'm leaving. So we're just now learning that there's nothing that you can't do. 
and, 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 and you're, we're seeing you actually do the miraculous right before us. And now you said, I'm, we're going. What's going to happen now? That you're leaving. What's going to happen now? Well, by the Holy Spirit, they do what he'd done while with them. And even greater things than he'd done, they do. But to Jesus, what we're learning here is that the greatest of these divine, supernatural, you know, miraculous, heavenly things that they would do, what you've seen me do, you'll do also, would be loving one another. That right there. He says, I chose you, I appointed you, verse 17, these things I commanded you that you love one another. I chose you, appointed you to go and bear fruit, love one another. It's my command, the new one. Do this if you do anything at all. Love one another as I have loved you. So I titled this message, What Here Doesn't Have and How to Get It. I want to close with sort of three observations. Three things here doesn't have, and then ultimately the fourth, how can these things be ours? Number one, the Father's love. The Father's love is something that (laughs) here doesn't have. It was, if I can say it this way, and if I see it rightly, it was the heavenly environment the Father provided for Christ while on earth. It was the air he breathed. It was the wind at his back. It was the joy of his heart. It was the warmth on his face. It's something the here doesn't have. We think how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure. And if I, if I see this rightly, that is, if while Christ lived here in the midst of all kinds of opposition and the hatred, vile hatred of men to the degree that they wanted to murder him, ultimately did. But he, he had this other reality. No matter who hates me, the Father loves me, that he lived in. So God had this environment of love that he lived in. If that's true, it makes me ask a, f- a few questions. Number one, what's the, environment that we, what's the environment of this place? What's the environment of this people? What's the environment of Calvary Chapel. What kind of environment have we created? Now, some of you are like, when you're at the helm, you know, it's a little suspect. When the other guys are teaching, it feels a little bit more loving. We'll go a little deeper. What about your home? What's the environment in your home? Like, what's the air that y'all breathe at home? Like, what is that environment? What's the environment that's created there? I'll go a little bit further and ask you husbands, what's the environment of your marriage? Like what is the air that your wife breathes? Because scripturally, God's commanded a husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church, laying his life down for her. What, what is that environment? Like what environment have you created? Wife, what, does, what air does your husband breathe? We won't let you off the hook. Because the one command for a wife is to respect her husband as she does the Lord, to submit to her husband as she does the Lord. So the, and that's kind of how it started, right? When you, when you first met your, your spouse, when you guys were together, you, the husband breathed in respect and the wife breathed in love. We spoke to one another. I spoke to my wife in ways that she knew that I had this fond affection for her. I would compliment her. You know, the, so she, 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 her tank was sort of full. And then, and then me, on the other hand, she, she didn't know me well enough, so she thought I was funny. She thought I was smart. She thought I knew where I was going. You know, so I, I breathed in respect. So that's what happens. That's why a lot of young people get married, because y'all don't know any better. You don't know what you're getting, right? But in a marriage, now, I don't know about this personally, what I'm getting ready to describe. I read it in a book somewhere. <laughs> My wife's here at this service, so we're going to make this one perfect. <laughs> but here's what happens in a marriage. Marriage people, you know this. What happens is the, the, the atmosphere changes. We don't speak words of love. It's like in our, in our marriage, a wife begins to sort of choke because we're not, a husband's not acting in a way that's loving. I don't think that the husband knows any better any more than the wife realizes that she's being utterly disrespectful. We talk to couples all the time. It comes down to this, love and respect. It just does. You meet this huge guy and this little tiny wife, and the huge guy has been reduced to nothing because he doesn't feel respected at all, and this beautiful little one over here feels like she's not loved at all. And listen, neither of them are trying to do it on purpose. It's just that this whole idea of marriage, when a man marries a woman, those are two entirely different things, right? So you're trying to figure one another out. And I just want to say to the ladies, 
it shouldn't be that difficult for y'all. Because your husband is so simple. Like, he's not complex. It's two things. Two th- food and that other thing. That's all. That's all the husband. After, we've been married for 27 years. It's like, babe, are, are, you, are you evolving at all? Mm. <laughs> Number two. That's it. So I look on at wives, I'm like, he, I know him. He's not that hard to figure out. Now, a woman is a very different ballgame. She's nuanced and she's, she's, she feels things in a way. Women feel, it's, this is a strength. Women feel things in a way that men don't. A, a husband and wife will leave church and the wife's like, did you feel that? And the husband's like, yeah, they turned the air. It's so cold in there. Like, you know, so different. And then you talk to a woman, like, what's you? I'm, I'm, I'm number one and I'm number two. I'm really, really simple. Food and then the other thing. Like, where, where's, what about you? Well, I just want us to talk. Well, is that number one? Is that number two? Is my number two anywhere in the list? So if talk is your number one and my number two is number, could we number one and number two at the same time? You know, maybe we do that. Let's make a good marriage. I actually have no, I, I, don't know where, I, I don't know where I'm supposed to be now. <laughs> this is uh, talking about the father's love. <laughs> and an environment, and an environment. And I will, tell, I will tell couples, and I think it's important as a church and in, in our homes, but I will tell couples, it's, it's why, because there's, there's no love and there's no respect that you can do something so small and all of a sudden there's this blast. Like, why do we keep exploding on one another? Because there's no margin. I mean, there's just, the, the, the environment is so absent of those things that anything, that, it's just like caustic, right? So I'll say to couples, can, can you begin to then, again, in the simple ways that you know, can you begin to reintroduce into your marriage by your words and your actions your omissions wherever they need to be. Can you put some of that back into the marriage and you'll find that you'll have less and less of those explosive exchanges because now there's a little bit of margin. She, she knows there's love and he knows there's re, respect. So we have, we, sons and daughters of God, have access to something that here doesn't have, the love of the Father, then the son's joy, which really we would say would be the radiance of his face upon us and without which our joy can't be full. And we'll come back. And I've got two questions here. The, the first one is just simple. Honestly, how do you think you do as it relates to joy? Like, what's this, as a meter, how much, like, where do you operate on a scale from one to 10? I'm sure we all fluctuate, right? But where, where do you sort of operate as it relates to joy? It is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Um, and to maybe go a little bit deeper and maybe even to help you sort of find that out. And this, this is really convicting, but think about this. How much of here do you need to be happy? You know? Because we're talking about things that here doesn't have, but how much of here do we need? What of here do we need to be happy? That maybe help you sort of in terms of like, where, where's my joy? Not contingent upon the things that we have here but accessing something that's, that's there. Heavenly friendship, we've moved from servants that once operated only on a need-to-know basis to now his friends who are in the know. We know the big picture. There, is, uh, there are some men far, far wiser, far more astute, far, with far greater understanding that I, that believe that unless the church understands this cultural moment, there's not a lot of hope for a better tomorrow. So if understanding our cultural moment is critical for a better tomorrow, then how, how about understanding our relational moment? How important is that for a better today? Like, am I, what role am I in right now? And, and what, what could change? Nevertheless, these things are things that here doesn't have, and they're shared things. The best things in life aren't here. 
they're heavenly and they're best shared. You say those are profound things. How do we have them? Church, one word, obedience. There are if, condition, if statements attached to two of these. One clearly inferred, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my Father's love, which we learned is the, or abide in my love, his love, which is the Father's. As the Father loved me, I have loved you. You remain in my love by obedience to what? This is my command that you love one another as I have loved you. Verse 12 follows verse 11's, these things I've spoken to that my joy in you may remain and that your joy may be full. The idea is clear. This other great shared thing, now not the Father's love but the Son's joy in us and our joy complete only comes as we obey his command. And then finally, you are my friends, friendship with the Son of heaven, if you do whatever I command. Again, simple obedience. Now, it's true that obedience to God does go beyond the simple command to love one another, but this, the supreme thought here by which we access these things that here doesn't have comes by this one command, to love one another as I've loved you. Amen? So, Father, here we are um, by grace, and we know what we're, we know who we are, we know what we're called to do, you know that in this room right now, there are those of us that are experiencing these higher things, these holy things, and life here is, is very, well, it's transcendent, it's divine. Others of us are, we aren't. I mean, the key, some of us have the key, some of us don't, so some of us are choosing obedience, some of us desire, like we are bent toward it, we want it, we are doing all we can too. Some of us are picking and choosing, that I'll obey, that not. And it sort of makes sense as to where you find us. I thank you that you chose us, that we didn't choose you, that you've ordained and pointed that the good work that you began, you're going to complete. But there is still something that you've asked us to do. You've, this is a, a partnership here. So we know what we've got to do. We need your grace and your power to do it. Give us mercy and grace to do your will. And all God's people say, Amen. Hey, let's stand together and we'll close in song. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Frank Ramsour. If you enjoy the message, you can learn more about Pastor Frank's ministry by visiting calvarychat.com. That's calvarychatt.com.